Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. This is episode 37. I'm Randall Hayes. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Danielle Lee, who is like the Ginsu knife of my current professional activities. She slices, she dices, she blogs at Scientific American. She's a hip-hop maven, an urban ecologist, a Baltimore raven. No, wait, that's not true. It just rhymes. Sorry, got a little carried away there. As you can probably tell, I'm really bad with hip-hop. As outlaws go, I'm a little more Johnny Cash than Tupac Shakur. But, as you will hear later in the interview, country mice and city mice have a lot more in common than they think they do. As a heads up to the listener, I'm splitting this interview into two pieces. I did that all the time last spring when I first started this project. Well, it's it's crunch time again. End of the semester. People graduating and all that. So things will be less regular than usual for the next few weeks. On the plus side, this year I plan to continue through the summer with new episodes. This week, we're talking about getting more people involved in science and the environment. I've mentioned this before, but last fall, Audubon Magazine had a long article about the membership crisis that almost every environmental group is facing, where the membership is old and white. These groups are desperate to increase minority membership and participation, but there are cultural barriers that not many people have been able to bridge. It starts with simple issues of language and what words mean. When you say urban ecology, is that like a code word for black people doing ecology? Or does it also just... No, that's kind of one of those things. The word urban has so many... It's now a buzzword. It's a euphemism for black in the city. I don't mean it that way. Though, I can't deny that I am deliberately trying to get more, at least black and brown kids from cities to take it seriously. So it, I didn't do it deliberately with that kind of double entendre, but uh, if it appeals to them, uh, and if that's what helps them, if it appeals to them, then I'm fine with it. But no, I actually mean the study of plants and animals within, within uh, a built-up environment. So in cities, backyards, neighborhood parks. So what, what kinds of things do you work on then in those environments? do so I'm an animal behaviorist but what I, I focus on is using the nature outside your door as ways to introduce ecological concepts so my actual research study right now I'm not in the urban environment at all I'll be in Africa doing research <laughs> uh, so my research so far is, has been on rodents in cornfields and soon in Africa, in, in the middle of nowhere, Africa. But I focus on urban ecology as, uh, from the point of view of like backyard science or citizen science. Breaking in here for a second to define some buzzwords, which is much easier to do with editing software than it is over the phone, when the other person can't see your face and can't tell that you would like to say something. Citizen science is a very cool idea where you get people who are not professional scientists involved in real scientific research. 
you'll hear me in a couple of minutes talking about the Great Backyard Bird Count, which is a partnership between the Audubon Society and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. But there are tons of these projects, some of which I will be linking to on the website and all of which are open to everybody. To encourage young people and their families to do everything from bio, alpha biodiversity, you know, what lives here, to animal observations, so animal behavior studies, introducing them to environmental science, such as water quality or air quality or any of those kind of pollution factors. The idea that um, there's a lot going on, you don't have to go off to some exotic place to observe basic scientific principles such as food web interactions or predator-prey interactions or, you know, how chemistry affects life. That's how I use urban ecology as a, as a prompt to get people interested in science. So that's really cool and very similar to, to the things that I'm trying to do. You know, awesome. The, the Great Backyard Bird Count, birds are kind of charismatic and they're out during the day and Put a feeder out. You can lure them. Yeah. <laughs> Yet another thing that I'm I'm going to have to, you know, <laughs> pick your brain about further because I'm I'm not an ecologist. I'm a neuroscientist. Oh. Okay. I study learning. So I mean I like the outside, but the sort of the reason that I'm that I'm doing partly this ecology stuff is just that no one else is doing it here. Okay. And I'm I'm seeing a niche and a need on multiple you know multiple niches right the the nonprofit groups really want to expand their reach and their the demographics of the people that they serve right but they don't know how and then right and then the the students who attend this school and other schools here in town are just you know, so clueless about the natural world that they don't even recognize that they're in the natural world. They actually think the city is not is not natural in some way. Right. No, I completely understand because I grew up in the inner city myself. I've, I have gone through all of those kind of developments myself. Um, so what got you what got you into nature as a city kid well, then? Well, I, even though I was a city kid, I spent my summers outside playing, which I don't know if kids today do much of that, which is the other reason why I talk a lot about just spending time outdoors, playing, playing as a family. But and I, and I do, I feel a little bit, it's a little bit hypocritical of me, even though I love technology, and I'm, but I always feel, encourage people, don't get caught up by all this technology. Don't feel like you've got to get every gadget out there. I'm actually a proponent of doing the most with the least technology. So I played outside a lot. My mom was a summer parks worker, so I went to work with her every day. And my favorite activity of all, and probably still is, was hunting for four-leaf clovers. <laughs> and I credit my, um, I was, and I'm a beast at it. I'm that person I can walk down the street and stop and I can see a four-leaf clover. I'm I'm insanely good at it, <laughs> and I credit that with my what I considered when I look back. That's the reason why I think I was able to eventually become a good scientist because what that did was it taught me a few things. 
it taught me how to slow down and observe. And I explained to students that observation is the foundation of all science. You can't ask a question. You can't begin to formulate hypotheses. You can't begin to design experiments. You can't do anything until you've been paying attention enough to realize what's going on here. And hunting for four-leaf clovers laid that foundation, that those soft skills that scientists need. And then once I was able to find four-leaf clovers, um, then I started I realized the other thing that helped me to do was that it helped me identify slight patterns in the midst of a lot of noise. That's another skill you learn as a scientist, usually high, high up. That's one of those higher level skills. You know, when you get a lot of data or you get a lot of stuff going on, how do you filter out all of that stuff that looks just alike to find that one thing that's just a little bit different? I learned that skill from hunting for for these clovers. And that's, 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 what a, that's, that's what a paleontologist would call a, a search image, right? A search image. You're right. I had a search image. But it's a hard search image because I was looking for green on green. I was looking for things that were hiding and twisting. So even though I had a search image, it wasn't very easy to find. It was still very complicated because of the layers. And it wasn't easy. Science isn't easy. There's a lot of tedium in it. I, I, that's the other thing I explain to students. It's like if you really enjoy it, if you like it, you Understand it's not all fun and sexy like National Geographic. There are, definitely, there are definitely moments where you're on a high. There's a lot of moments where you're slowly and patiently and quietly, you know, brewing because <laughs> things aren't going fast enough. But those skills kind of were cultivated when I was six years old, hunting for four-leaf clovers. And then I, while I was hunting for four-leaf clovers, I started noticing all these other things, particularly the animals. You know, I noticed bees. I noticed how they hop from one flower to the next. I noticed that the clovers, the flowers themselves, you know, they took some time to grow. And, you know, once the grass was cut, if the grass wasn't cut too soon, it got too tall, I then knew I better start looking out for garter snakes because once it gets a certain height, I knew to expect garter snakes. So I started developing, you know, this ecological sense of at least the little places I hung out, and I knew what to expect. I knew, you know, some grasses were itchier than others. And not knowing the name of anything, but I had a really good, you know, at least personal vocabulary for that. And I think, sadly, too few children, you know, feel like they belong to a certain piece of nature. And mine was just my neighborhood park. And so, yeah, that's you know, the thing. I connect. think parents just don't let their kids outside as much. They don't. I, I think with and the 24-hour news cycle, people are so people are so afraid their children are going to be abducted. That, that doesn't they, happen. I mean, it's the, the, the it's rare. It's so children, rare, but people hear rare. about it. You you hear about it, but it one it doesn't happen. Children wander off, but I remember being told, "Don't you come inside." <laughs> You better stay gone. But I also had boundaries. Like, I knew not to go past a certain house. And, you know, so, and I always thought my mom wasn't looking, but little did I know she was always peeping her head out the window every few minutes and neighbors were doing the same. And so there was also a different sense of community then where all children belonged to all adults. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, you, if you tried to spank somebody else's kid today, you'd be in a lawsuit. <laughs> right, or even not even spanking, but just telling your child, telling another child, stop that. 
or that's dangerous. So there was this sense of you you belong to that neighborhood. So I belong to that neighborhood. And if a stranger, even another adult came on the street, there were at least other adults who were like, we don't know you. Who are you? No, I don't know you. I don't care if you are this child's relative. Until we get her mother on the phone, me and you going to look each other in the face. <laughs> until we get this arranged. And that just doesn't sadly happen anymore. So maybe that's why parents don't feel comfortable letting their children play outside. But but it was because I I had this very close sense of ownership to my park. It wasn't just a park. It was my park. Boy, this was my tree. And, um, well, see, I grew up out in I the country in in farmland. And the, uh-huh. that same kind of community is very much still alive out there. That's good. You know, if you pass somebody in, on the highway and you don't wave at them, you're being rude. You know what? That is definitely uh, – that's a southern thing too because I was like – I was feeling a little shocked. People would walk by me in the hall and not at least nod. I'm like, you got within an arm's length of me. You at least have to nod. <laughs> It's rude if you don't acknowledge it. Like, and you speak every time. I don't care if you saw me five times today. You say hello. <laughs> when that was the crazy thing when I lived in New York is that it was sunlight dependent. Oh, really? You would see, people would say hello more often when I lived in New York. They would say hello more often in the spring when the sun was starting to pop out than they did during the winter. That's interesting. Oh, it, it may have some uh, – there may be some depression effect. <laughs> I believe that. I wouldn't doubt it. That explains the grumpiness. But so that's how I got into it, and I was always interested in animals. I brought home everything possible to try to fix it and care for it. Um, because I was interested in animals, I went off to school to be a veterinarian because I didn't – that's all I knew you could do. If you liked animals, you became a veterinarian. And so that's how I ended up being an agriculture major. Because I didn't, that's how little I understood. I did not comprehend that veterinary medicine was an agriculture discipline. So I took all these agriculture classes. I loved it. Um, I struggled culturally because I had no idea what they were talking about when they would talk about barns and steers and cows and geldings. I had no idea what they were talking about. (laughs) But getting out on the farm, and doing hands-on learning, and I liked that. My classes were all experiential from day one. There was the first week of lab in my animal science class, we were on the farm. We were actually doing stuff. And that was the reason why I was able to make it in science, because in my harder science, like the traditional science classes, like biology and chemistry, I struggled because it was so abstract. And that's, I think that's, one of the biggest problems right now, the I think the PhD world, right, once you get to graduate school and you get a mentor, it becomes a real apprenticeship kind of situation. Absolutely. And and I was always really good in the classroom. And so I I just had a good memory and so the classroom I was always fine with the classroom. Although I I grew up on a farm and so I had I had a lot of hands on experience with certain things. But uh, I think that is part of the key to why education is not working for so many people is because classrooms are just unnatural. 
they are unnatural. And and I was I was uh, I was good in like K twelve. I did well. I was a good student. I knew how to play the game. I knew how, but I didn't have to study very hard until I got to college. So I then had to really learn how to study, and it took me a couple of years to do that. Um, but it's also just different. It's just a different culture and behavior of the professors in agriculture and in biology and chemistry, the natural sciences. It's it's a completely different culture. Um, I've, I've noticed that with my with the animal science program that we have here, I've noticed uh-huh. that there's it's they they track. I think the programs are smaller is one thing, so they okay. know the students better. But uh, the other thing they track them. I mean, the students have to show up every the male students at at this school have to show up every Wednesday suit you know shirt and tie, and they're given they're given a presentation or they're held responsible once a week for some program-specific kind of activity that's outside of all of their classes. Wow. So there's just a, a level of – there's a level of tracking that that doesn't happen you know, with these liberal Well, I didn't quite have that experience, but I agree that our classes were smaller in, agri- in agriculture than in biology and chemistry. Didn't have all that extra stuff. My professors definitely got to know me sooner because of the smaller classes, but – I, I can. It just seemed to be a different pedagogy, and of course, I didn't know this word at the time in college. But I look back now, especially since I've matriculated through biology for grad school, it's definitely a different pedagogy in what professors expect of students and what they think their job is. So, my biology and chemistry classes, I got the feeling that professors did not care about students that they felt that their job, at least at the freshman level, was to weed us out. That's very clearly what they think. Yeah, I felt as if they were trying to discourage as many of us as possible to not be in science, not even be science majors. They were trying to discourage us out of science beyond the junior level. I felt discouraged, and it it wasn't because I was a black student. I felt like that was universal. (laughs) Like it was about weeding these, weeding weeding off the shaft. It really, really was. In agriculture, I never felt that way. It always felt as if I think every single student in here is capable of learning. Um, And even though, and I'll say this, even though I was. I may have been the first black student to graduate with an agriculture degree at that school. I definitely was the only one in recent history. Um, And so I was definitely in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. So I had classmates who had never met a black person before me. So just to get an idea of the culture I was dealing with. So it was definitely. That's the culture I grew up in. Yeah, it was definitely predominantly white. It was definitely rural. At least where I was at school in Tennessee, there were nearby cities, which I'm sure many of those students came from, where they still had a history of uh, racial segregation. So they came from towns that had proud clan histories. Despite that, I felt more valued and welcome in that department overall than I was in the biology and chemistry departments, which had several black students majoring in each. And it was because I thought something about that rural culture made people, one, welcoming, 
So they all it was always this kind of country folk reaction to everybody. You know, the whole kind of family style dining. I, I always had this feeling in all my classes as if it was family style dining as opposed to everybody has their own different plate, like I felt in the natural sciences. And because of that, we had to work together, you know, on the farm. When the students realized I didn't know what I was doing, not because, you know, I was unintelligent, they were like, oh, you're from the city. And so they naturally jumped in and explained things to me. Now, I also think the professors made a lot of assumptions because 99% of the students came from farms. They kind of spoke in farm jargon. So they took for granted everybody knew what they were talking about, but they were very gracious at explaining things once they realized I'm not a country kid like the rest of them. Yep, people talk about the difference between north and south a lot, but I think the real difference in, in America is rural-urban. I really do. But you know what else I'll say this? And after, after going through that experience, if you pull back even farther, if you look at deep inner city behavior and then deep rural behavior, they are actually the same. Yeah, yeah. They are actually the same. Um, there's only there's only two or three generations removal from the farm. It, yeah, but it's no, I don't think that's the reason why. It's not that people, you know, have those steel country uh, uh, issues. I think when you look at particularly the, the problems that we say that are affecting inner cities or rural areas, they actually have the exact same problem, and that's opportunity and access. Inner cities and deep rural areas both have the worst school public school systems. They both have a hard time attracting talent or keeping talent in the area. When kids finally do well, they leave and never come back. Both communities have the exact same issues. Both communities have trouble with drugs and early parenting, mostly because the young people are bored and can't find jobs. So it's like even though you're looking at an inner city and you're looking at the deep rural, the only thing that really makes them different is the fact that most inner city kids are black or Latino. Rural kids tend to be white. They both have way too much access to guns, maybe slightly different. I mean, it's actually the exact same issues. They have white flight and lack of access, lack, lack of access to jobs and education. It's actually the same issues. I've mentioned before the hypothesis that resource-poor environments encourage particular flavors of cooperation. In other words, if you're rich, you don't need other people as much, which encourages you to be selfish, even though objectively and rationally, you have more that you could share if you wanted to. This is what you call convergent evolution, where the environment poses the same problem over and over again, and nature finds similar solutions to those problems over and over again. With this same idea, you could predict people might become more cooperative or less selfish during bad economic times than they are during good economic times. I've thought to myself several times that conservation groups like Audubon should have what economists would call a counter-cyclical strategy. What I mean by that is simpler than it sounds. Ask for money when economic times are good and ask for volunteers when economic times are bad. Don't conserve your resources. Double down 
when the economy is bad and when people are out of work. During the Great Depression in the 1930s, the federal government formed the Civilian Conservation Corps that built a lot of our state parks. Environmental groups could organize those same kinds of efforts today with the same goal of just getting people out doing stuff and their popularity would benefit from it. Spend money and make friends. People will remember it when the economy turns around. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Danielle Lee for being on the show. She'll be back next week to talk about how she leverages her specific cultural knowledge to pull people into thinking about science in general, and evolutionary science in particular. Until then, you can check out her Scientific American blog through a link on our website, variationsselectioninheritance.podbean.com. Look for it under episode 37. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. This weekend, I will be Twittering and live blogging from the Contact Conference at the SETI Institute. SETI stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. I'll talk more about that next week after I get back. But it's a really cool conference where scientists and science fiction writers and movie people come together and build an alien planet over the course of three days. It's cool. Tune in. BSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, with editing help from Lauren Branch at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with funding from the National Science Foundation. Thanks for listening.